0: It is 710 in the Twin Cities, 51 degrees, May Murphy, with you until 9 o'clock, along with producer Jonathan Lowe. Well, this past week, I covered uh, an announcement by the city of Minneapolis saying that they were going to change how they handled their investigations of sexual assaults. And one of the speakers at that news conference was a woman who is a forensic nurse. And forensic nurses are the ones who do the examinations of victims – what their job is so important because they are there with the victims. I wasn't aware how long some of these examinations can take. They can take four hours, even longer, uh, while they go over and photograph and talk to the victim. They play a critical, critical role. And one of the things that I also heard here is how long it can take for officers to respond to a victim who is in a hospital who wishes to report uh, a, a sex crime. And that's something that I, I did not realize was the case that oftentimes officers will say, listen, the victim is in a safe place, obviously a hospital. We have a shooting to respond to. So oftentimes those victims are left waiting. Uh, it, it was it was really an important discussion because there's been a lot of talk that the Star Tribune did really a, a wonderful job uh, last year talking about how many many sex crimes are not fully investigated and how there needs to be a, a more victim centric process in those initial hours of gathering the information and and gathering the statements from the victim and from potential witnesses. Amy Schmidt is a lead nurse with the Alina Forensic Nursing Program, and she is joining us right now. Amy, thank you so much for coming on. Hi. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Amy, let me ask you, and, and obviously we know our nurses are are so uh, amazing. They go through so much training, so much education, but what does it take? I mean, this really sounds like such a skilled, such an important job what kind of training do you have to go through and, and this this has got to be one of the toughest jobs in nursing?
2: Well um, I've been I mean I think I've probably done over 500 exams so I started first of all when you were the nurses that work for my program they're uh, registered nurses that um, come to us with, some, some kind of emergency nursing experience, um, obstetrics and GYN, mental health and chemical dependency, we require one of those or ICU nursing. My background's in emergency and ICU. Um, so the training we put all these nurses through is a 40 hour course, a week long, that, um, teaches our nurses how to handle these patients in evidence collection. Most importantly, the medical exam, the medical part of it in the head-to-toe examination. And, um, you know, for example, victims of strangulation, 50% of those victims don't have any injuries. Wow. So you really have to triage your patient and look at your patient from head to toe, um, making sure that they're okay. The evidence collection is a a large part of it, but also very small where the medical is most important. But we teach our nurses all that within a a week, but then they're also out with us in the field for, it depends, um, two to four months, you know.
0: Wow, okay.
2: Yeah. Mm -hmm. If you have experience, it's probably two months, but three to four for new being
0: nurses and, and you folks really are on the front lines. What are some of the things um, that you believe need to be changed, and and do you feel some of the changes that are being addressed by the post board recommendations, by the Minnesota Attorney General's recommendation, by the city of uh, you know Minneapolis and the police department? What what are some of your thoughts about that?
2: Well, I've over the so since the topic of the sexual assault patients and that kind of thing has become so big the past couple years. I feel like over the last uh, two to three years, I feel like the police have incorporated um, victim informed. Um, it's called FETI. So it's like trauma informed interviewing. And I believe that they've been incorporating this into their training the past two to three years, which I've seen a dramatic change in the officers and how they respond really? and things like that. Yes. Um, yes, there is times that we have to wait, but I mean, it's, it's all, you know, we're trying to do so much work with what we have.
0: Right, And that's what we're
2: striving for is more.
0: You know, one of the things that they talked about at that news conference was that uh, training officers in in trauma-based investigations, in other words, training them on how to interview somebody who has been through such a traumatic event, and I can't imagine anything more traumatic, and and that – you have to get that training because that helps you deal with questioning that person and they may not be able to kind of go through it in steps one, two, three, chronologically, they may have flashbacks, that kind of thing. How important is that? Do you think?
2: I think it's very important. Um, You know, when we, we use the same mechanism, but it's all about when you walk in the room and the rapport that you, that you develop with the victim and then you can, you know, you can kind of see where you're going or how they react. And then that, that kind of guides you along with your exam and what questions you ask next. Right. And things like that. It, um, it's hard to explain, but, you know, um, it's about how you ask and how you, your rapport with the patient.
0: Right. It, it sounds like you, you, you're, you're saying is that somebody who is on the front line, such as yourself, and we're chatting with Amy Schmidt, she is a forensic nurse with uh, a line of health systems, uh, and she is the one who does the exams on people who are victims of sexual assault. It sounds like you're saying that the changes are already happening even before this new policy was announced, th- that officers are, are, are really getting it and, and changing their approach.
2: Yeah, they're, they're really trying. They are.
0: Mm-hmm. And, and, and that, that's something that, that's very difficult. In terms of what you do, do you feel that, that you as nurses have enough resources? Are there enough of you that do this important work?
2: Um, so the challenge is the challenge is getting so recently in the metro area, there's more than one program. So at Alina, we have um, our manager, Karine Zakwasinski, and then there's, there's I. So she's full time and I work four days a week. And so we really strive for the full time um, forensic nurses to be able to accommodate all patients. Um, but we recently added two nurses on call during the weekends because okay. of the call volume. So I do think we have um, adequate resources, but um, you know, all our numbers keep increasing. So at some point, we're going to have to increase our staffing. One unique thing at Alina Health is we are the only program in the state of Minnesota that's a full forensic nursing program. So wow. okay. So we not only do sexual assault, we incorporate domestic violence, child abuse, elder abuse, and some um, um, general assaults.
0: Got it. Well, listen, um, Amy Schmitz uh, and Alina Forensic Nurse, thank you so much for joining us. We certainly appreciate your time this evening. Yes. Absolutely. Thank you for having me. All right. Uh, we're going to continue this conversation, and thank you to Amy Schmitz uh, for, for joining us with Christy Jarvis. She was a forensic program coordinator of HART. That's the Hennepin Assault Response Team, and she is also a forensic nurse examiner. i want to follow up with her from a coordinating standpoint if she feels the resources are ad- adequate, and what about these changes that have been announced Will they bring an improvement to the response to sexual assaults in Hennepin County and even on a larger scope throughout the state? You're listening to News Talk 830 WCCO. It is 722 in the Twin Cities, Esme Murphy with you until 9 o'clock, along with producer Jonathan Lowe. We are talking about changes in the handling of sexual assaults. The Minneapolis Police and the City of Minneapolis announced changes in their protocols this past week. And also the post board, which governors, governs all police departments, uh, set out different protocols earlier this year. Uh, the Minnesota Attorney General's office, uh, ordered some changes and rec- made recommendations on how to improve the system. Uh, we just heard from Amy Schmitz. She is a forensic nurse with Alina. Uh, now we've got Christy Jarvis. She is with uh, she's a forensic program coordinator of Heart Hennepin Assault Response Team, and she is also a forensic nurse examiner. Christy, thank you so much for coming on. We certainly appreciate your time this evening. Not a problem. Thank you for having me. All right. Let me ask you: Do you think these these changes uh, are, are enough? And are you seeing them in your practice?
3: Um I, I do think there. I think it's a good start, and I think. Um, that you know, overall, we can always improve on our response. Um, but I think this is a great way to get started with that. I have seen changes already um, with the Hennepin County Attorney's Office. We actually have a group of us that are called the Sexual Assault Initiative, and we get together routinely to discuss cases and our processes overall to um, help determine whether where we can still improve. Um, And we partner very closely with Minneapolis Police, as well as the other police departments within Hennepin County and outside Hennepin County. And I've already seen um, a lot of changes just in the way that these cases are being handled.
0: Well, that's great. And and, and the changes... Overall, um, specifically, how about in terms of the officers and the response time to getting to the hospital? Because many people, you know, there are many victims who come, go directly to a hospital because they're so traumatized and prefer to deal with, with, get the help from you. And then you're the ones that actually make the call to the police. Are, are, do you find that police departments are responding quickly enough when you call 911?
3: Absol- absolutely. absolutely, um, We don't see much of a delay. Um, again, about half of the cases that we have are at HCMC, um, which which might help with that response. But even when we're outside of Hennepin County, uh, providing exams down in Burnsville and Northfield, uh, the response from law enforcement is quite quite good.
0: In terms of um, the training that that you get and and the work that's being done uh, to try and make sure that the interviews of the, with these victims are, are done in, in a way that is conducive to getting the most information that you can out of them. And while that sounds sort of obvious, uh, apparently when you have somebody who's been a victim of such devastating trauma, you can't just interview them the way you might interview somebody whose home has been burglarized. Uh, do you feel that those changes are, are being heard and being implemented? And do you feel that they're necessary?
3: Yeah. So, I mean, so as Mary said, that's a great question. Um, We actually focus a lot on that when we do our training of nurses um, who are going through classes to learn how to be a forensic nurse. And we refer to it as trauma-informed care. And I think it is important because when somebody goes through a traumatic experience, um, the number of stress hormones that go through their body basically shut their brain down And they aren't able to remember things the way you would, say, if you were just, you know, going to work one day. and You could remember every step from start to finish. Their brains don't think that way. So it's very important for anybody who works with these individuals to be trained in that so that they know how to ask them questions to get the most information from them. Um, We do it. um, I do train at the Minneapolis Police Academy as well. Um, And I think that there's a lot of different law enforcement departments that are up um, training their officers and their detectives in this so that they can um, be able to better communicate with those victims.
0: Yeah, and I had never heard that term before this past week. Trauma-informed training is, is what it's yep. called. And in Minneapolis, at the Minneapolis Police Department, uh, Chief Arredondo, the, the chief of the entire department, said he, everyone in the department, including himself, was getting this training because he felt it was so important for people to understand this. How long has this been around?
3: Well, I was trained on it a couple of years ago at one of our international conferences uh, by a woman by the name of Rebecca Campbell. Um, And that was my first exposure to it. So I don't know, you know, honestly, how long it's been around. I think with forensic nursing in general, it's such a new field that things are always um, being developed and changes are happening. And I think that's where it started to come from was the area of forensic nursing first.
0: Yeah. Oh, and and that's interesting because I did ask uh, our first guest, Amy Schmitz, about Mm -hmm. the training and how much training was needed. But you're saying this is actually a new field.
3: Forensic nursing is, yes. Wow. Um, Yeah. So, I mean, the Hennepin program actually started it back in one of the first programs in the U.S. But forensic nursing in general is fairly new. Um, Our governing body that we call the International Association of Forensic Nurses was just formed in 1992.
0: Oh, interesting, and 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 more is it is it something that a lot of uh, men and women who are going into nursing are considering?
3: Um, no, because most people don't know about it.
0: Huh. So, in
3: nursing school, we were never told that this was even an option. Right. Um, I found it when I started looking into different areas of nursing, and I and I fell in love with it. Um, but yeah, a lot of times we are now speaking to colleges more about this, so that nurses know this is an option, but. I think in Minnesota, we have probably less than 70 practicing forensic nurses.
0: Wow, okay. And and is this being taught at local nursing schools?
3: Uh, no, it is actually something that is done outside of nursing okay. school after uh, nurses have graduated and they start their career, and then this is something that they can do after like one to two years of experience.
0: Wow, okay. That, that's, that's fascinating because I, I didn't realize that it was a new field, and I didn't realize you know, the, the degree of specialization uh, that that it involves. Well, listen, Laura Dunham, uh, thank you so much. Uh, or I'm sorry, Christy Jarvis, uh, thank cool. you so much for joining us. We really appreciate this insight into um, you know the training that goes on and and how these changes that that everybody agrees are needed are being implemented. We 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 thank you for that, and we certainly hope that in this important field, these uh, improvements and, and these changes are implemented to try and make. Uh, the reporting of these horrible crimes uh, as easy and as accurate as possible. So thank you again.
3: Thank you, guys.
0: All right. That is Christy Christy Jarvik, uh, Forensic Program Coordinator of the Hennepin Assault Response Team and also a forensic nurse examiner. All right, folks, we are going to take a break. We're going to give you some weather. I hate to tell you the S word is in the forecast on multiple days. Yes, we're talking a chance. Of snow, I'll give you the details here in just a few minutes. And then coming up uh, in our next half hour, we are going to talk about two different topics. One, a really, really cool uh, contest at uh, St. Thomas for entrepreneurship and also the threat of measles and how it is a growing threat in this day and age. Despite vaccinations, a lot of people choosing not to get vaccina- vaccinated and what that means for the growth of measles in this country. So keep it here. It is 736 in the Twin Cities, 51 degrees, as Mae Murphy with you, along with studio coordinator and producer Jonathan Lowe until 9 o'clock. Have you ever thought or have you ever had a great idea and wondered, gosh, I just think maybe this could be something that could – just a great company or a great business – Well, at the University of St. Thomas at the Schill School of Entrepreneurship, they have a contest and this is featuring students from around the country that have entered and it's down to I think 25 finalists from all over the nation and it's at the Schill School of Entrepreneurship in St. Thomas and they are competing for $250,000 in prizes, Uh, to see who's got some of the best ideas and and this kind of money could go to seed money for some of these brilliant ideas. Joining us is Laura Dunham. She is the Associate Dean of the Schultz School of Entrepreneurship at the University of St. Thomas. Thank you so much for coming on. Yes, thank you so much for having me. Well, this sounds so cool. Obviously, the Schultz School, a, a great, great business school, but this is a really neat contest. Tell us about it.
1: Yeah, so we are hosting this weekend starting on Thursday. Um, a three-day celebration of undergraduate entrepreneurship that culminates on Saturday uh, with a national business plan competition. And as you mentioned, we're bringing in 25 teams from all around the country, and they were selected from over 100 submissions. Um, and these teams are going to participate in three days of just all kinds of activities, workshops, uh, pitch competition, an innovation challenge where they get put with uh, members of other teams to solve an innovation problem, and then on Saturday, the big national competition. So, um, it's a pretty exciting event and, um, a lot of fun, um, and a lot of great learning that goes
0: on. Right. And some amazing prizes. I mean, the top prize yeah. is $75,000. Uh, And there's $250,000 in total prizes. Obviously, one of the big issues for people who've got those great ideas is you need the capital in terms of trying to get it off the ground, and this is exactly what, what that could achieve. How did this idea come to be? So this is
1: an idea that is brought courtesy of the Richard M. Schultz Family Foundation and also EIX. EIX is an online portal for educators and entrepreneurs sharing information, um, and the idea was let's figure out ways that we can continue to support all these young people who are entrepreneurial out there in the world, and who need venues to continue to build their skills, um, but also to network, to get mentored, um, and, and to have the opportunity to earn this kind of capital. And, and these students are amazing. They're tackling big problems, just a variety of different problems. They're bringing some really innovative solutions to these problems. And it's exciting to be able to give them a venue to share these ideas to learn from investors and advisors and judges how to improve their ideas, and then to be able to provide them with the capital they need
0: right and it's so the things largest undergraduate only venture pitch competition in North America in terms of cash it prizes it also i would imagine because you're you're you know it applies to any anybody from all these colleges can apply. I would think it also sort of raises the profile of the Schultz School. Um,
1: Well, I I think for sure it does. I I think, uh, you know, the Schultz School is one of the first entrepreneurship programs in the country. So we've we've always been well-known. We were one of the first schools to actually have a dedicated department with faculty who have been entrepreneurs and have been trained, you know, PhDs as entrepreneurs. So St. Thomas has always had a major commitment to entrepreneurial education, and um, this is just one of the many things that we do at St. Thomas um, that allows us to, you know, further the education of the students that we work with.
0: And, and what are some of the ideas that, that, that are out there that that, that you that have to be considered and, and that some of these students have come up with?
1: Yeah, so these students are just tackling just a huge range of things, from medical issues to, to social problems. Um, Here's a couple of the ideas that are going to be among the semi-finalists this week. Um, An intelligent steering wheel that helps prevent distracted driving. Uh, An automatic intravenous injection device for medication that replaces manual needle injections that actually have very high error and infection rates. A personal carbon emission tracker um, and an offsetting app that also contributes to reforestation projects. Uh, A platform for people with intellectual disabilities to discover and share their artistic talents, a safer and more... I mean, the list goes on and on. I mean, they're all entirely different um, and all of them really innovative in the way they're trying to solve this problem. It's very impressive to see what these young people are doing.
0: And and let me ask you, obviously they're going to be judged on on, on the merits of of the project they're proposing, but it, it also sounds that the way they pitch it is going to be evaluated. Is that the yes. case?
1: Yes. So there's nine criteria that the judges judges are looking at, and most of it has to do with the business idea itself. You know, have they sure. really identified a customer who has a real problem? Does their solution address that problem? Have they figured out their competitive advantage? Um, do they have a revenue model that you know how they have they figured out how they're going to get paid for it? Is there a substantial opportunity there? But part of it is how well they have communicated the idea, how persuasive, how clear, um, how compelling it is. And you can actually, on the EIX website, you can actually see uh, some of the semi-finalist video pitches that run from five to seven minutes, and you can already see just the tremendous talent that we are going to get to watch on Saturday from looking at their videos.
0: Yeah, and, and you know, when I first thought about that and and how that they're going to be evaluated on the pitches, I thought, well, hmm, is that really the way to go? And then I thought, well, you know something, you could have this great idea, uh, but if you can't really articulate it a- and sell it to get the kind of investment and and the capital and and people behind it, it's not going to fly. So so that is that important and and it, that might be something that, that for some people they may be brilliant at putting together this project, but they also have to push themselves to be able to articulate it uh, and, and sell that. And that's something that I, I imagine is for for some of these people might be the most challenging part. For sure. I mean you have to be able to pitch
1: your idea because what you start with as an entrepreneur is an idea in your head, right? Right, and, right. And an insight. So you have to be able to paint that picture and convince people there is an opportunity there and that your solution is the right one and you're the right person to deliver it. And that's challenging, and it's a really important skill set for any entrepreneur. Right? Um, You know, there's a lot of courage involved in being an entrepreneur, and um, there's also a lot of teamwork. So sometimes you have people who are brilliant technically, brilliant, brilliant, you know, business, from a business standpoint. And then you have the one who's the great pitcher, you know, yes. the, the person that can do the pitch. So it, it's all about pulling together the, the, the combined skills that you need to to bring this thing to market. And pitching is definitely
0: one of those. All right. Things. And this is going on all this week, and uh, it culminates on Saturday, is that right?
1: It does. And it's uh, 1 o'clock is the what we call the championship round. So the final five will be competing. Um, and that is open to the public in Schultz Hall um, on our Minneapolis campus. Um, some great judges, uh, Dick Schultz, who is a big supporter of the program at St. Thomas, um, and obviously founder of Best Buy, very smart entrepreneur. He's one of the judges. Uh, a good Jolie. person
0: to learn. I mean, no, no one better to learn from.
1: <laughs> Absolutely. Um, Hubert Jolie, who's the current CEO of Best Buy, will be a judge. Um, Ann Wimblad, big VC from California. Um, And so not only do you get to see these students pitch their ideas, but you get to hear the give and take with the judges, how they're evaluating how they're thinking about these ideas. So it's a fantastic learning experience for the audience as well.
0: How cool. All right. Well, listen, Laura Dunham, Associate Dean at the University of St. Thomas, the Schultz School of Entrepreneurship. I'm sure it's going to be a huge success. Thanks so much for sharing. It's very, very cool.
1: Absolutely. Thank you for having me. All right.
0: Take care. All right. Very neat stuff. Uh, Again, culminating On Saturday at the Schultz School of Entrepreneurship at the University of St. Thomas. All right, folks, we're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we're going to talk about why there has been this outgrowth of measles across the country. Uh, We're going to chat with uh, Lynn Bata. She's an immunization clinical consultant uh, with the Minnesota Department of Health. It is 749 in the Twin Cities. Esme Murphy along with producer Jonathan Lowe with you until 9 o'clock. Coming up in our 8 o'clock hour, we are going to chat politics and the latest on the Joe Biden controversy uh, with Professor David Schultz of Hamlin University. But right now, we are going to talk about why measles is surging across the country, why cases of measles are growing across the country. Lynn Bata is an immunization clinical consultant uh, with the Vaccine Preventable Disease Section of the Minnesota Department of Health, and she is joining us right now. Uh, Lynn, thank you so much for coming on. And and from your perspective, how alarming is this increase in measles across the country?
4: Well, it certainly is a signal that um, we still have work to do to keep our children protected. Um I think that it it's a signal that there are, there are pockets of unvaccinated children, and with those pockets um, come vulnerabilities.
0: How are we doing here in Minnesota when it comes to measles?
4: Well, we generally, our rates are pretty high for when we look at a broad measurement of of measles vaccination coverage.
0: So, so, well, in other we, words there's a, we don't have a lot of measles here. the disease
4: no we you know despite the outbreak that we saw a couple years ago, um, we average about two cases of measles um, every year, and usually it it comes from um, people who may have traveled um, and are unvaccinated and then um, come home and end up with with the disease because they were exposed outside of the U.S. in an area where measles is ongoing. Right. And we do see that happening um, all over the world. It, um, there have been some very large outbreaks in Europe. Again, the biggest threat to measles has been um, people refusing to vaccinate their children. And so um, there's, there's been some very large outbreaks and ongoing um, disease in Europe, in Africa, in Asia, Southeast
0: Asia. So, yeah, you know, I, I um have the uh, opportunity to cover the Minnesota State Capitol, um, and I was there um one week, a few, number of weeks ago, and there was a bill. It's gone nowhere, um, but uh, there was a bill to make it tougher for families or people to opt out of getting their kids vaccinated. And as I said, the bill wasn't even ready to go up for a committee, but there was a protest against the bill. In other words, um, anti-vaxxers were were protesting this bill and there were hundreds and hundreds of people there with their children, you know, protesting, saying they want the right to not vaccinate their kids. And and there were a lot of people there who felt very strongly about this and, uh, you, you know, they said that they want the choice and... I'm wondering, is this movement growing?
4: I would say what we see in Minnesota is that about 2% of the population um, refuses all vaccines. And um, and that's according to um, reports that we see from the kindergarten requirement data that comes into the health department and that's been pretty stable um, we really haven't seen it go above that uh where we sometimes see some issues is is in, in pockets in certain areas um, of the state or certain schools where where parents um, collectively have not been vaccinating and that's where that that creates vulnerabilities um i would say that we're not seeing growing numbers but certainly Social media has um, created a network that becomes a lot more um, visible. And so I think we're seeing the visibility
0: of this. Right. And this is what actually – it's interesting that you bring that up because th- this protest was actually coordinated through Facebook. Oftentimes, uh, you know, us in the, the mainstream media will, will get a, a news release saying such and such a group is having a news conference. And obviously or, – or, or a protest because they generally want coverage if they're having a protest. Uh, this was all coordinated through uh, social media uh, and and that's the way that, that these groups of anti-vaxxers were, were communicating. Let me ask you this um, and if you can state it again. What does the overwhelming consensus from the medical field say about the safety of vaccines and the importance of vaccines?
4: You know the, the the overwhelming evidence shows that they are safe and they are effective, and uh, the the overwhelming um, majority of parents support vaccination. Sometimes they get behind on um, getting their kids vaccinated, but what we see through our data is that parents do support immunizations, and we have a way to prevent maiming and death in children, and that's through vaccination. And we give vaccines to healthy individuals, both children and adolescents and adults and seniors. Um, We want to make sure that what we're giving is the safest um, piece of of of, um, protection that we can provide. And so there is every reason to make sure that what we're providing is safe and that it does work. And um, while... Nothing is hundred percent. Um the standards that vaccines are held to are extremely high.
0: Right. And and you know, every single um person that I've talked to about it uh you know in the medical profession that 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 you know talks about this data that has children all have their children vaccinated. And I, I don't think there's any oh, yeah. more compelling evidence than that because right. I think anybody who has children uh, you will do anything, you know, for right. your kids to make their lives better and, and to keep them from suffering or keep them from getting ill. It's just what you do. And, and the people who are the most knowledgeable are the ones that are advocating for this. Um, is there enough education out there happening, do you think? Or do you think we need to go to a different level at, in terms of spreading the word about the efficacy of vaccines?
4: Well, I think that we all have to play a role, Um, you know, as a community, um, just as we vaccinate to protect not only our children, but um, others' children as well. um, We we need to be more bold in, in saying, you know, I vaccinated and my kid is doing great and they're protected uh it's It's a role not only of public health but it's a role of our provider community, and it's a role of parents um to to say, Yes, I'm doing the best thing I can by vaccinating my child all
0: right and, so, um, and so some think... of these illnesses can be fatal. yes, yes, so, all right. Can. well, listen, um we do have to cut you off uh, Lynn Bata, the immunization clinical consultant with the Minnesota Department of Health. Thank you so much for helping spread this important message.
4: Oh, it's my pleasure. Thanks for having me, Esme.
0: Absolutely. All right. Uh, something that's so important. All right, folks, keep it here. News Talk 830 coming up. Professor David Schulz of Hamlin University on politics.